Traveling all the way from his home in Mali, Baseku is one of the true masters of the Ngoni, an ancient traditional lute found throughout West Africa. With his band Ngoni Ba, Baseku pushes the boundaries of his ancient musical heritage, bringing his music to audiences around the world. More information and tickets, visit jazzisdead.com or kpfk.org. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, new interim LAPD chief. Food vendor license fees finally lowered. Homeless in Santa Monica. How 5G endangers our lives. Renounce Reagan Day. Julian Assange's last chance to avoid deportation to the U.S. Success Story Nicaragua, and news from outside the NATO bubble. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Rachel Brunke. The Los Angeles Police Commission yesterday appointed Assistant Chief Dominique Choi as Interim Chief of the City's Police Department. His duties start at the beginning of March, following the retirement of Chief Michael Moore at the end of February. Choi will be the LAPD's first Asian-American chief. Assistant Chief Choi has been with the LAPD for 28 years. He thanked the mayor and the commissioners for having the faith and confidence in him to lead the third largest law enforcement agency in the nation. Choi said he will not be applying to fill the position permanently following rules that the commissioners established in their search for an interim chief. The commission is in the process of identifying the top three candidates for Moore's permanent replacement as chief in a nationwide search, which could could take up to nine months. Bass is then expected to make a decision for the final appointment, although she has the ability to ask for other candidates. The next chief will also need confirmation by the full city council. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors gave final approval on Tuesday to a pair of ordinances regulating sidewalk food vendors, while also adopting a subsidy program to offset much of the permit costs included in the new regulations. Supervisor Hilda Solis said that there are roughly 10,000 sidewalk vendors selling food in the county, most of them coming from Latino and other communities of color. Sidewalk food vending is a critical part of the cultural and civic fabric of our county, Solis said in a statement after Tuesday's final vote. However, fostering and celebrating this micro-entrepreneurial spirit will not happen if the financial barriers to entry remain too high. The first ordinance approved by the board outlines health permit requirements for compact mobile food operations which are smaller operations run from carts 
or other non-motorized equipment. The ordinance will apply to all vendors in the county, except those in Pasadena, Long Beach, and Vernon, which all have their own health departments. I am excited for this movement to support sidewalk vendors across Los Angeles, Los Angeles City Council member Eunices Hernandez said prior to the vote. She describes street vendors as the backbone of local commerce. A storm response report released by the mayor's office on Tuesday included figures on the city's stormwater capture from this latest rain. The report stated that at least 6 billion gallons of stormwater have been captured in the Los Angeles alone since the beginning of the recent storm event. Efforts to improve L.A. County stormwater capture have increased since the 2018 passage by voters of Measure W, which funds the Safe Clean Water Program, or SCWP. The program invests approximately $280 million annually into multi-benefit stormwater capture projects and programs. The SCWP is designed to clean and conserve billions of gallons of stormwater that would otherwise be lost to the ocean when it rains, with the purpose of increasing the livability and water resilience of L.A. County's communities through the development of green space, recreational opportunities, and other enhancements. The SCWP prioritizes investment in disadvantaged communities and favors projects that employ nature-based elements like wetlands. The funds used to create jobs in the area of stormwater capture are generated annually from a special partial ta parcel tax passed by voters as Measure W in 2018. This tax is levying on more than 2.1 million parcels within the district's boundary to generate a dedicated revenue source to help address water resilience challenges. Don't push me cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep... The troubling housing choice voucher program in Los Angeles is leading to thousands of vouchers going unused, while the city's homelessness problem grows worse. L.A. currently has more than 58,000 subsidized housing units and vouchers as at its disposal. Of those homes and vouchers, less than 80% are being used. But the vast majority of those that are going unused are the Section 8 vouchers. With over 75,000 people unhoused, according to the 2023 count, Mayor Karen Bass has seen this number grow during her time in office, despite claiming that she has made resolving homelessness her number one priority. While systematic help included job training and placement, as well as mental health programs for 75,000 unhoused, are still missing, Bass reroutes blame to landlords who refuse Section 8 vouchers. According to the latest data, Los Angeles has roughly 9,000 Section 8 vouchers that went unused last year. We spoke to Monica, a lifelong resident of Santa Monica, who became homeless after an eviction that left her unable to pay rent that have more than doubled since she last went out apartment hunting. 
Monica showers at a cheap gym to keep her appearance spotless, to hide her homelessness from her boss. She still works in Santa Monica, but can't afford to pay rent. During the rains, she slept with her handicapped husband in their car. Rebel Alliance News caught up to her in the gym, which is the only place she can find temporary rest, warmth, and safety. I'm a homeless woman, and I had a Section 8 voucher. But every place that I go to, even though people advertise that they accept Section 8, but once you call them, they do not return your call, or they say, yes, we do. But then when you put the application fee, and each person, it's $50. I would pay the $50, and then in the end, after two days, they said it's been taken. So I don't have that much money that every time I would apply, that they will take the $50, and then only for them to say it's been taken. So it seems like they just want to make a face that, yes, we do accept your voucher, but once you apply, they turn you down. I have one lady that tells me, if you have the voucher, you should live in Palmdale, you should look in Victorville. But my job is in L.A. My job is in Santa Monica. How am I supposed to make a living living in Palmdale or Victorville? That's what they want us to throw. Yes, we do have Section 8, but I wish the mayor would listen. You just handed me the voucher, but you're not really helping us with the apartment owners that are turning us down. I just want to be heard that, yes, we get the voucher, but you need to help us also because these people who are trying to rent are turning us down. They take our money for the the references or or credit or something. I don't have the money to keep applying and paying $50. I'm begging for for the city and the mayor to help us, not, not just hand us the voucher because you hand us the voucher, but they're not really taking it. I live in my car. So I live in my car, so we're just fortunate that we, we do have the shield from the car. But even with the car, it's, it's not that easy, the cold. When people make fun of us or hate us, like, you should not be here. I'm like, do you think I'm, I'm doing this on purpose? Do you think I love staying in this car? There's these people who live in the apartment, and they're the one making it harder for us. And I told them, lady, if you ever get kicked out from that apartment and you, I don't know how much you're paying, you're in Santa Monica, you might be paying $800. Pray that you won't get kicked out because once you get kicked out, you think you can rent. So unless you're in my shoes, you will never know what it is. If you get kicked out from your apartment for one bedroom that you're paying 850 there's no way that you will find another 850 because yeah. the cheapest one is 2000 Just a moment. No, I, I see them sleeping on the street in sleeping bags, and now they have tarps over the sleeping bags because of this rain. But, I mean, I just don't, I don't get it. My husband is on disability with the mental health, so they were the one help, um gave us the voucher for emergency. Mm-hmm. But like I said, we might have the voucher, but it's so not easy. Yeah the gangster area. I'm looking also after my safety because my comfort zone, I used to live in Palos Verdes. I used to live in West LA, Santa Monica. I never live in this area where they're trying to send us. And if you live in Santa Monica, where you used to live all your life and all of a sudden they want to throw you out of Palmdale or in the desert or Compton or where this scary area, you would not understand until you get to my shoes. And to those people that live in an apartment and you're being mean to homeless, wait until you lose your apartment 
and you think you can find another $800 because the <laughs> cheapest one is $2,000 for one bedroom. If you use a smartphone or similar device, you might be using 5G technology. Phone networks worldwide are rolling out the fifth-generation mobile tech, providing high-speed wireless connection. While in Europe, the detrimental impact of 5G electromagnetic radiation on health has long been acknowledged, the telecommunication lobby in the U.S. has overpowered the legislature and has instrumentalized the mainstream media to ridicule dissent. Julie Levine is an anti-5G activist and the executive director of 5G Free California. LB spoke to her about the dangers of 5G and her upcoming lawsuit against L.A. County. Wireless radiation is absolutely scientifically proven to cause harm, including cancers and reproductive harm, immune system harm, etc. That is known by the industry, known by the National Institute of Health. There have been thousands of studies proving harm from this non-ionizing radiation. 5G small cell towers are perhaps the worst in terms of the impact on health. And yet the government is denying harm and moving this forward with record speed. I was part of Occupy Wall Street LA. In that capacity, I was using my cell phone a lot. I started particularly after the police were using scrambler software that included 5G technologies. I started getting very sick. I would faint. I would have vomiting and diarrhea, sleep disorders, skin rashes, etc. I really didn't know at the time what was causing these symptoms. As I think many people in this country who are experiencing sleep disturbances, unexplained anxiety, depression, are also being affected by these technologies. At that time, I started looking into it when I eliminated the variables. I went to a place off-grid where I healed and then determined that, in fact, it was uh, the smart meters, the cell towers, and the boosters, as well as the cell phones that were causing me harm. I started looking into it, and I found out that an estimated 15 to 20 percent of Americans are in fact experiencing tinnitus, other early symptoms from wireless. I also found out that the United States had many studies, including a composite of studies done when the military started getting sick using microwave technologies in the early 50s, all the way down to a National Institute of Toxicology report, a long scientific study that's out of the National Institute of Health that showed all kinds of harm, including clear evidence of cancers, particularly shawarma cancers in the ear and also, yes, brain tumors. However, the United States government has decided, by the way, last week to stop doing any further studies because there are literally hundreds of bills, federal bills right now, going through written by telecom companies that are streamlining the small cell towers, and doing so while minimizing harm. So they don't want additional studies. They don't want us to know how harmful that these technologies are. Meanwhile, so many of us are unfortunately addicted to our phones and other devices that it's we don't, we're in a bit of a denial ourselves in terms of looking uh, at the impact. First of all, I should say 5G is not the same thing as the 5G on your internet. 
That's a faster internet speed than the 2.4 gigahertz. That's different. This is called fifth generation cell phone. It's generations. First generation was landlines. Second generation was landlines and a teeny bit of text function or data. Now we've gone up all the way to 5G. With each incarnation, there's more data and more harm, more radiation. 5G represents the Internet of Things. 5G was an effort to connect all of your wireless devices, starting with your cell phone and your smart meter, to your appliances at home, to everything that had a smart chips, so that everything would be pulsing. It uses a, a pulse radiation, would be pulsing between each other all the way to the telecom company where you're charged based now on time of day, on your usage, etc. This is not only surveillance by the telecommunication companies, but surveillance by the government. Small cells was initially designed under contract with the U.S. military by General Electric, and it was designed as a military surveillance tool. So now, with the help of your own cell phones, not only do they always know where you are, they know what you're buying, because after all, their only interest in you, other than as a potential target is as a consumer of their goods because it's always about the profit. Their data points on you at the expense of your health and your well-being. So in 2018 to 2019, the federal government began to unroll this. Now, as I said, there are many streamlining bills that actually say if you challenge it, you become a domestic terrorist. It is a felony if you challenge and all of these bills are designed to eliminate people like me and us at 5G Free California and other groups uh, nationwide and locally who are trying to fight any of these applications. Those light poles that suddenly sprung up every 200 to 500 feet around the country and the world, they're 5G activated. So all of them can become and will become 5G towers. One of the things I found was that all over the world, there was similar legislation to the one in our country, which enables the telecom to do virtually anything they want and to roll this stuff out everywhere. Well, it turns out telecom has been influencing those governments too and writing legislation there because it is ultimately a worldwide surveillance tool. But my concern with it today really has to do uh, with human health. I'm up in a very rural right-wing Christian area. There are 200 people within 30 miles. The only place that I could find anywhere near where I lived, I didn't want to lose my friends or my community. I'm now three and a half hours away to get away from these small cell towers, which I can't sleep. I cannot function with. But we do have a lawsuit, Fiber First LA, which I am a part of, and it's against LA County. They can put these cell towers five feet from your bedroom, on your property. You don't have a right to notice. You don't have a right to appeal. They're claiming that these towers are ministerial, meaning they're basic operations, and therefore do not have to go through any kind of an environmental review. By the way, they're terrible fire hazards. All of this is causing electrical fires. This is being ignored. So we are fighting this. We have a court date, which is March 12th at 1.30 p.m., we are urging people to show up for this court date because they're trying to sweep us under the carpet. And if there's just eight of us, it's not going to go well. We need to fill the courtroom. This is going to be in the L.A. Superior Court. The judge, who has not been very supportive so far, is Honorable James C. 
Chalfont. We really need people to show up for this court date. Very, very important. Children's Health Defense is funding the primary lawyers. Five, number five, letter G, three, California.org. You will have all the information about the court date and what you can do. Um, is there a new cell tower that's gone up in your general neighborhood? Cell towers, the big ones, the macro towers, they can radiate for up to 10 to 12 miles. So, And there is no place in L.A that you can go that doesn't have a cell phone within two miles, okay? And most people now have the small cell towers within 500 feet of their homes because that's the area that they generally function within. It's a very strong signal in a small area. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And it's time again for our fun drive, the time where you give back. This probably isn't your first time listening to Rebel Alliance News. We're working every day for free, gathering the news so that you can be informed. Not by infotainment like other stations are bringing you, but by real uncensored, hard-hitting news. We can do this because we don't take money from large corporations like NPR does. We are truly independent. You are our sponsors. Your donation helps us to keep going, and it's needed more now than ever. We offer you the fruits of our labor in an amazing best-off compilation on a USB stick. KPFK and Pacifica have collected the voices of dissent, of conscience, the voices for human rights against racism and war for over six decades. This is an archive you can get nowhere else, and it can be yours for only $250. Please get it yourself, for yourself, or for your children, your school, your community. Share this knowledge that many media outlets want to condemn to the memory hole of history. Please go to your phones and call 818-985-5735 and say you want to donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you want to keep us on the air, please donate now, 818-985-5735, or go online to www.kpfk.org so that you will still know tomorrow what's going on in this city, this country, and the world. Do it for your kids. Save and protect independent media. We are the last holdout. Call 818-985-5735 and donate now. And if you're one of the lucky people who can afford a little more, donate more, because many of us are hurting and can't donate, even if they wanted to. Let's stand together and keep this amazing radio station going. Thank you all. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. This past Tuesday was Ronald Reagan Day. Commemorated officially in California since 2011, February 6th, the birthday of the nation's 40th president, has also been declared a state holiday in Wisconsin and Mississippi, while 40 U.S. governors have issued proclamations declaring February 6th as Ronald Reagan Day in their respective states. Hmm. In response, the local activist group Renounce Reagan declared February 6th to be Renounce Reagan Day and annually promotes public actions and awareness about the true legacy of Reagan and his policies. This year marks the fifth year of the group's activity. 
Melanie Cohen coordinates the group who gather annually to renounce Reagan and list the following reasons for her ongoing protests against the deceased president. And the list is long. Reagan's military buildup led to today's militarized economy. Reagan was also an early testifier to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. This committee contributed to the blacklisting of thousands of Americans and silencing progressive political solutions to this day. Reagan's hostile union-busting activities drove the decline of workers' living standards over the past 40 years. His Reaganomics economic model greatly contributed to the unsustainable wealth gap in America and the defunding of social infrastructure. Reagan's Iran-Contra scandal, his wars against Central America, and his invasion of Grenada, as well as his support for apartheid in South Africa and his threats to invade Cuba, are only some of his abuse of U.S. military. He promoted consumerism, materialism, and wealth accumulation as primary goals of our society, leading to reckless exploitation and pollution of the American environment and its resources. Reagan was the first president to embrace Christian fundamentalism in the White House and initiated the war on drugs, which led to racially motivated mass incarceration in the United States and to trauma throughout America's cities. Reagan worked aggressively to destroy the California farm worker movement and supported COINTELPRO activities against black Americans. While being governor of California, Reagan dismantled the mental health field, sending thousands of mentally ill, who were often veterans, into the streets, catalyzing the homeless crisis. Reagan ignored the AIDS crisis and traumatized Generation X with his constant fear-mongering of nuclear annihilation. This year, the renounced Reagan group added even more items to the long list of Reagan crimes. Reagan was called the Teflon president, as all his crimes remain unpunished, making a mockery of constitutional parameters supposedly guiding a U.S. president. His disregard for the law and insisting on immunity despite presiding over multiple war crimes created a legacy of non-prosecution of every U.S. president ever since. As a result, U.S. presidents continued to perpetrate war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, now Gaza, and engage in insurrection at home. The group's activities culminate this week with a rally this coming Saturday at noon in San Pedro at 3rd and Harbor Boulevard in front of the USS Iowa, which is a former w World War II battleship sent by Reagan in 1984 to the coast off Nicaragua, threatening invasion. The public is welcome to attend the event coordinated by the renounced Reagan group. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Day X will mark the final chance in UK courts for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to avoid spending the rest of his life in jail in the US. On February 20th and 21st at the UK High Court, a panel of two judges will consider Assange's final appeal against an extradition order signed by the UK Home Secretary. 
the judges could accept all or some of Assange's grounds for appeal or reject them. Any grounds that are rejected at this time cannot be further appealed in the UK. The only remaining hope to prevent Assange's extradition would then be at the European Court of Human Rights, which is not binding in the UK. If extradited to the US, Assange would face up to 175 years in prison. The US charges allege that Assange conspired with whistleblower Chelsea Manning to obtain classified information. They want him to stand trial on charges under the Espionage Act and for computer fraud. According to Amnesty International, the U.S. government's indictment poses a grave threat to press freedom, both in the U.S. and abroad. The conduct it describes as illegal includes basic professional activities undertaken by any investigative journalist and publisher on a daily basis. Were Julian Assange's extradition to be allowed, it would criminalize common journalistic practices and permit the U.S. and possibly other countries to target publishers and journalists outside their jurisdictions for exposing governmental wrongdoing. Publishing information that is in the public interest is a cornerstone of media. Publishing information in the public interest is protected under international human rights law and should not be criminalized. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture has called upon authorities in the UK to block Julian Assange's possible extradition to the US, saying Britain could be violating human rights, rights laws by turning the WikiLeaks founder over to the US. His mental state might be too fragile to survive prolonged solitary confinement in the harsh U.S. prison system, U.N. expert Alice Jill Edwards warned on Tuesday. He is currently assessed at being at risk of committing suicide, as he could receive a potentially disproportionate sentence in a U.S. courtroom. Amnesty International's General Secretary has called on U.S. authorities to drop the charges against him and the U.K. authorities not to extradite him but to release him immediately. Assange remains detained in London's high-security Belmarsh Prison, where he's been held in solitary confinement now for over four and a half years. He has not been allowed to attend court in person since January 2021 and it's not clear yet whether the court will allow him to be present at the February 20th and 21st hearing. The Defend Assange campaign has mounted worldwide protests on behalf of Assange during the time of these hearings. WikiLeaks was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 and more recently for the 2022 Sarkov Prize for Freedom of Thought, Stella Assange, the wife and mother of Julian Assange's two children, spoke on his behalf at a panel at Strasbourg's European Parliament in 2022. Julian is in Belmarsh High Security Prison in London, where he has been since he was arrested on the 11th of April 2019. He is under administrative detention. He is not serving a sentence. He is fighting extradition to the United States which is bringing an outrageous 
regressive, politically motivated case against him for publishing the truth. I am very honored to share this panel with Francisco Lero and the Colombian Truth Commission. Julian and WikiLeaks has dedicated his, his life to defending human rights and doing it through publishing the truth. Julian, one of his most famous quotes is that if lies can start wars, the truth can start peace. The best way to achieve justice is by exposing injustice. Julian is um, facing a politically motivated case in the United States for WikiLeaks publications about wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what WikiLeaks exposed was the truth of the barbarity and the brutality of war, and the fact that victims of war are the, the ultimate injustice against the victims of war is their victimhood not being ignored and recognized. So when WikiLeaks published the Iraq war law, 15,000 individual civilian deaths were brought to light. And the fact that these deaths had occurred had been hidden away by the Pentagon for PR reasons, for finance reasons, for whatever reasons. But these 15,000 civilian killings had not been known until Julian and WikiLeaks published the truth. WikiLeaks also published evidence of a war crime in a video called Collateral Murder in Baghdad, where at least 12 civilians were gunned down by a helicopter. It's a video that shows the perspective from the helicopter as these people are killed. Two of them were gorgeous journalists. And when a van came to the rescue of one of the dying journalists, that van was also gunned down, and the rescuers were killed. And the only survivors were two children, who survived because their father, who had come to the rescue of this dying journalist, threw his body over them, and they were severely injured. He died, but he blocked the bullets from killing them. I'd like to thank the European Parliament for the recognition of Julian this year as a finalist for its Peak Freedom of Thought and Human Rights Prize. It comes at a time where the urgency and importance of this case cannot be clear. There is a growing clamor for Julian's freedom. Just in the last three weeks, we've had a joint statement by the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, El Pais, and Der Spiegel calling for Julian's immediate release saying that this case is a grave threat to press freedom globally. Julian is not being prosecuted as a source or as a whistleblower. He is being prosecuted as a publisher. He is being prosecuted, he is charged with receiving, possessing, and communicating to the public true information of the utmost public importance. It is a regressive case that is dangerous politically and legally. It is extraterritorial in its reach. Julian is not a U.S. citizen, he was not in the United States. He was in fact in the United Kingdom and he was publishing in partnership with European publications. The activities that are being criminalized, the activities for which he's being prosecuted could be equally brought against any journalist in the European Union. This cannot be tolerated. Amnesty International has called this case politically motivated case. They called the, the United Kingdom's High Court decision, the latest High Court decision, a travesty of justice. The Australian Prime Minister also in the past three weeks has said enough is enough that he has made representations to the U.S. government calling for Julian for this case to be brought to an end and for charges to be dropped. You asked how Julian's doing. He's suffering profoundly. He has no reason to be in a prison cell where he has remained 
without charge in the UK, and the charges that have been laid against him in the United States are charges for activities that we, as democracies, say are of the highest importance of having an open and accountable society where government crimes and excess and corruption can be exposed without fear of reprisal and certainly without fear of imprisonment. Julian is uh, in a small prison cell for over 20 hours a day. Just imagine that for years. We have two children, they're three and five years old. They get to see their father about one hour a week. Our children need their father, and this incredible injustice has to end. Prosecution has always been a extremely controversial prosecution, even in the United States. The Obama administration announced that it was not going to prosecute Julian over the Chelsea Money Leaks because they said Julian Assange is a publisher, he's not a hacker. And they also said that the only way to go after Julian Assange and WikiLeaks was to prosecute him as a publisher and to set a precedent for the rest of the press, and that the Obama administration was not prepared to do that. So what changed? There was no change in any of the evidence or the information. The only thing that changed was the administration, and the Trump administration came in. Julian was charged in 2018 because they were prepared to go after the press, because they wanted to set a precedent after, to be able to go after the press under the 1917 Espionage Act, which is an extremely broad and outmoded and dangerous piece of legislation. It was from the First World War. So why is Biden pursuing what is Trump's most dangerous and lasting legacy? There is a, a lot of, even in the Department of Justice, several prosecutors were taking off the case because they disagreed with the espionage charges against Julian. This was reported in the Wall Street Journal in 2019. This is a political case. It will be dropped if there is enough pressure for it to be dropped. And there is unanimity among the human rights organizations, all the major human rights organizations, all the press freedom organizations. In fact, the Committee to Protect Journalists just a week ago, this was after the New York Times and the Monk and so on, the Committee to Protect Journalists, together with the Reporters Without Borders and other press freedom groups, major press freedom and human rights groups in the United States, called on the Attorney General to cancel these charges. The biggest, uh, the biggest uh, shift has been in the Australian government, which is now openly calling for uh, Julian's release. And this is what it will take for Julian to be released. We're not there yet, but there has to be a growing and increasingly insistent clamor for him to be released. How long should a journalist be in prison for publishing the truth? Tell me. Julian's life lies in the hands of decision makers. And what the United States needs to hear is from its allies to say this is intolerable. And not just because Julian's life is at stake, but because this case is a threat to press freedom within the European Union. Consider that Julian, as I said, he's not a U.S. citizen. He wasn't in the U.S. jurisdiction. The U.S. is applying its laws extraterritorially into the European space. So it is effectively limiting press freedom beyond its borders. The U.S. case is so outrageous that what they have said in the extradition hearing is that because Julian is not a U.S. citizen, he does not enjoy U.S. constitutional rights. He does not enjoy First Amendment rights. Think of the absurdity of this. First of all, it's a, it's a discrimination against him on the basis of his nationality. Secondly, if you're applying your Espionage Act laws beyond your borders to pluck someone from a, a foreign jurisdiction, bring them to your courts, and then say you're excluded from constitutional
constitutional protections because you are not a U.S. citizen. It is an outrage. I mean, I don't even have words for this. It's, it is so absurd that when you explain it, people think it can't be true, but they've stated it in court. That's how outrageous uh, this case is. Julian is going to fight this legally. And recently we have learned that during the Trump administration, they didn't just bring this outrageous case. There were plans and discussions in the White House, plans asked by CIA director Mike Pompeo for how to kidnap, rendition, and even assassinate Julian when he was in the embassy. How is it possible that the UK is even contemplating the extradition of Julian to the country who has plotted his assassination? There is no possible justice at the end of this. Julian cannot face a fair trial after all that has happened. His lawyers' meetings have been spied on by the CIA. There's a US case in, the, in Spain against the security company, which was working inside the embassy. Two whistleblowers came from, from that security company. They gave evidence hard evidence, hard drives, of how they had been instructed, not by Ecuador, but by their handlers in the United States, to spy on Julian, spy on his privileged legal meetings. They were instructed to retrieve the DNA of our six-month-old baby. Why did they want the DNA of our baby? And this was during the time that they were plotting to assassinate him. The investigation about the plots to assassinate him came out last year. It was an investigation out of D.C., Three national security journalists who have no particular sympathy for Julian or WikiLeaks. They did a 7,000 word investigation with over 30, that's 30, named and unnamed sources in the US National Security Council and the CIA. They corroborated that there were plans to kidnap and assassinate Julian. Our news team takes a look at Nicaragua, which has made some remarkable progress over the past decade. Don DeBar has more. Today we take a look at the Sandinista Republic of Nicaragua. It's the largest country in Central America. It's relatively small on the world stage with a population of just under 7 million people. It happens to be the adopted home of our regular contributing journalist, Stephen Sefton, and it is also one of the places where another of our contributing journalists, Camilla Escalante, hangs her hat. Stephen and Camilla were both in Nicaragua this Thursday, and we spoke with them via Skype. For a long time, I've been thinking that we might discuss some why Nicaragua is a, a, a very important country, in my opinion. And I've watched uh, all through, really since 1994, when I, I first started working seriously in community development at grassroots here. I've watched how Nicaragua has changed from being a, practically a basket case under the previous neoliberal governments that ran Nicaragua from 1990 to the end of 2006. And I've watched the country change since January 2007, when um, Comandante Daniel Ortega and uh, his uh, partner Rosario Murillo took over the government. It would be wrong to say that they took power, because back then the opposition still remained extremely powerful. But I've watched since January 2007 how the country has completely transformed into probably the most successful country uh, in Central America in terms of its overall development and progress. And there's one fundamental reason for that, and that is that Nicaragua completely rejected the neoliberal Washington consensus model um, that has been touted 
for so long and is still being touted by um, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. You know, I'm the usual recipe of opening up the economy as much as possible, cutting back uh, public expenditure drastically, um, privatizing uh, anything that uh, it would, was run by the state. And the only uh, element of that that Nicaragua has taken up is to open up its economy as much as possible. But what the, with the difference that they are genuinely opening up their economy to diversify their international and trade relations with the whole world. And for example, they've just uh, over the last while over the last year or so negotiated and completed and ratified a free trade agreement with China which has completely transformed their, their commercial opportunities and made them practically invulnerable to the kind of unilateral coercive measures that the United States has used with such success in recent years against many countries around the world. I think the total number of countries suffering those kinds of illegal measures with uh, coercive measures that lots of people call sanctions is now, what is it, well over 30 countries, something like that around the world, inclu including even ridiculously the People's Republic of China. So what are the main elements of Nicaragua's unique model in resistance to this overwhelming pressure that the United States like and its allies like to apply to developing countries? especially small development countries like Nicaragua. And the main elements have been an insistence on food sovereignty and food security. Nicaragua has developed its agricultural and, and livestock production to the point where they're 90% self-sufficient in their food supply. They've completely rejected having anything to do or as little as possible to do with the United States in, in terms of security issues. So they are the most successful country in Central America and probably the region in regards to their success in combating drugs trafficking and organized crime. They've built up an extremely successful, the, the best public health system, certainly in Central America and in, probably in most of the region. And the, 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 I, I think we were looking at the figures. I think they've got something like 75 major regional hospitals and local hospitals in, in the public sector, far more than, for example, Costa Rica. And so you have this series of uh, policies covering all sectors of national life in complete opposition to the kind of recipes that the United States and its allies like to oppose, uh, impose on other countries in the region. And that has made Nicaragua one of the, in my opinion, the, certainly the most successful country in Central America and perhaps uh, among the most successful countries in all of Latin America and the Caribbean. Camilla, is this a portable model? Well, it seems like some countries are going in the opposite direction. And the most one of the most important examples that we have of that today is Ecuador. Another one is Argentina. But the United States actually under Trump, but continuing under Biden, announced what their strategy was going to be in the countries of the Americas among the so-called Western Hemisphere and what their what the framework was. And they have said that part of their their whole scheme of promoting democracy and human rights and all of that is that they're going into these countries to promote a market-friendly culture. And they've said things like they're going to increase the awareness of the downside of non-market-based financing. And they're trying to go into these different countries like Ecuador right now to build closer ties between the United States and the 
the private sectors of Ecuador. And really what's going on is that they're privatizing the healthcare system and other things that were made to be more accessible, education, things that were improved drastically under the model that was implemented by Rafael Correa, the former president. And we're really going backwards in these countries in terms of access to, to these different services. And so they're quite literally doing the opposite of what Nicaragua is doing, whereas Nicaragua is trying to uh, make life more equitable, give people more rights, higher quality of life, lower cost of living and all of that. We're seeing the opposite in these countries that are now being taken over by the United States. One of the fundamental things about Nicaragua is that, and whatever the international media may um, say in their false reporting about Nicaragua, the main characteristic that I've seen over the last 20 years is the way in which um, Nicaraguan society under the um, Sandinista government here has become much more democratic. And I think the, the democratization of Nicaraguan society has been absolutely key in enabling the Nicaraguan society, the Nicaraguan economy, to develop in, in such a positive way and create conditions which, as you say, improving the lives of people here rather than the population finding themselves subject to the kind of economic repression and in Argentina's case and in Ecuador's case of course the actual security forces repression the resistance to those US inspired policies are inspiring in those countries and I think democratization is the key concept that has enabled Nicaragua to be so successful. So the question will now be whether or not we're going to see some of these sorts of things adopted in the neighboring countries, specifically El Salvador. We have, you know, an election just passed. Nayib Bukele has now declared himself president once again of El Salvador. And he won because of some of the approaches he had implemented into solving crime, getting gangs off the streets, lowering the rates of daily homicides and violent crime. But we've yet to see the implementation of any sorts of policies that would uh, bring about better health care, education and basic rights to people and the democratization you're talking about. So I think this will be the real question is whether or not these popular leaders who have won overwhelmingly in the polls, uh, including Xiomara Castro, including uh, Gustavo Petro, whether they will be able to follow the same sort of model as Nicaragua and have success. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing in El Salvador presumably is the stage being set for development, you know, when people stop shooting each other in the streets and such, but what's going to come next? We still don't know. So thank you both for this. It's an interesting peek into what's going on to the south of uh, the TV cameras here in the United States. And we'll speak with you guys again next week. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled mediasphere. Telesur reports, human rights organizations warned on Thursday of the danger to the civilian population in Gaza following an imminent land incursion by the Israeli occupation army. Precisely since more than a week ago, the Zionist troops have been besieging Rafah in the south of the Gaza Strip, where the number of killed, wounded, kidnapped and missing has increased. 
has increased in the city that borders with Egypt. On the other hand, local authorities stated that the residents of the area are seeking refuge in health centers, which at the same time have been the target of attacks by the Tel Aviv regime. It should be noted that although the International Court of Justice ordered Benjamin Netanyahu's administration to prevent genocide against the Palestinian people, the occupying troops claim that they will soon start a land incursion. Telesur correspondent Nora Harazin in Gaza has more details. More than four months now and apparently the Israeli army is getting ready to uh, for a new land invasion in Arafah. Why would anyone actually say this is because what we are witnessing now on the ground happening here in Arafah is just like what we witnessed over the past uh, uh, month in other areas like northern Gaza and Deir el-Balah. In some highlights, the Israeli forces launched a series of Israeli airstrikes on Arafah city, on uh, Tel sultan the Saudi uh, neighborhood, and all of these areas are actually densely populated areas full crowded of displaced people who have evacuated their homes in northern Gaza and in central Gaza for safety here in Rafah. According to the Palestinian medical sources, 15 Palestinians were killed. Uh, six of them are uh, children and this is in the Israeli attack on Rafah, on Al Mghayir home and also other Palestinian homes in uh, central uh, Rafah. At the same time, the Israeli tanks continue shelling the eastern border between Israel and uh, Rafah, while the Israeli warplanes and drones, they are not leaving the skies of uh, Rafah. So now the Palestinians are actually a very important question. Where should they evacuate next? The border with Egypt is closed. They only allow uh, the cases of those who have dull nationalities or some residencies outside of Gaza to leave. But what will happen to more than 2.3 million Palestinians? is here in Gaza. The United Nations Humanitarian Agency reiterated on Thursday about the risk of a devastating famine threatening Gaza on a daily basis, especially for some 300,000 people in the north of the Strip. In this sense, the Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said that the World Food Program had warned them that the amount of humanitarian aid that the Palestinian enclave is receiving is insufficient to prevent a famine. They reported that the last time they were able to deliver food to northern Gaza was on January 23rd, exactly 16 days ago. On the other hand, international experts reiterate that the blockade imposed by Tel Aviv on humanitarian aid constitutes a war crime and adds to the accusation of genocide presented by South Africa before the international court. Today, millions of Pakistanis have gone to the polls to vote in the general elections, while one of the most popular politicians, ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan, rots in jail. RT's Charlotte Dubinsky has more details. The main players are names you may have heard before. Now, as Sharif, a former prime minister, is back as the head of the Pakistan Muslim League. If he wins, he would become PM for a fourth time, pledging to make Pakistan great again after what he claims was years of ruin. We will not allow fraudsters like Imran Khan and his party to rule Pakistan again. They have ruined the country. We will rebuild Pakistan. These 30-year-old young people will stand shoulder to shoulder with Nawaz Sharif and Shahbaz Sharif and play their role in rebuilding this country. Sharif was 
removed from office during his previous term due to an array of corruption charges. However, they were overruled in the courts after he returned from Pakistan from four years of self-imposed exile in the United Kingdom. Another contender is Bilal Bhutto Zadari, leader of the Pakistan People's Party. He's previously served as the country's Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he's the latest in the Bhutto Zadari political dynasty to seek power. Some parties want to divide you based on religion, others based on your sect or ethnicity. The Pakistan People's Party is the only party which wants to serve you without discrimination and bury the politics of hatred and division. The only party that wants to resolve the problems of poverty, inflation and unemployment. Bury the politics of political revenge by voting for the PPP. Vote PPP to fight poverty, inflation and unemployment. Then, of course, there's the elephant in the room. Imran Khan, ousted from power in 2022, the former cricketer is languishing behind bars after being convicted of everything from fraud to an improper marriage. He's barred from standing and his party, PTI, has been purged by the authorities. Even its electoral logo, a cricket bat, was banned and now its candidates are forced to run as independents. Yet Khan remains defiant, urging his supporters to make their voices heard. Our most powerful and meaningful weapon is that of our vote, and we must wield it to overthrow crooks who have been imposed upon us. These are the main faces in a race that's crowded. There are some 14 parties on the ballot. So what's the word on the street? I don't have any hope for this election because of how things are being done, how one political party is being targeted. The way things are being managed, I don't think the election will deliver a credible result. What is being done to Imran Khan is making Pakistan lose respect in the international community. Nobody respects Pakistan. They think anything can be done in Pakistan. Now, whether it is the government of Zardari or Sharif, no country will respect Pakistan. I think a lot of And you've been listening again to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Please support our nightly news show by telling your friends and family and by donating to us. Someone will take your call now at 818-985-5735 and mention that you donate specifically to Rebel Alliance News. We need to earn our keep and show that you are listening. We have been bringing you breaking news and analysis for over a year now, after 10 years without L.A. produced local news at KPFK. Our team is working very hard every day for free, but we need to keep the lights on and pay for the station signal. So please call now, 818-939-5735, or go online to kpfk.org and become a member of our sustainer circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 a month and join our KPFK family. Rebel Alliance News thanks our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all our tireless contributors like Don DeBar, Polina Vasiliev, Janine Rowan, LB, and our great producer, Siri Rideau. You can also listen to us on KPFK Rebel Alliance News podcast on Apple and Spotify. Coming up next is American Indian Airwaves. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. Please join us then. I'm again, Rachel Brunke. Buenas noches and good luck.
Hi, I'm Annie Tip, a Cal State LA journalism student and a producer and host with KPFK's Cal State LA Community News Hour. So far, I've produced and hosted, and it has given me a better understanding of how to speak for broadcasting, and it has allowed me to work alongside my professors and classmates as well. The show has helped me develop and improve on my audio engineering skills, and it allowed me to find my passion for radio and broadcasting. I've gained real-world experience with hosting and producing on KPFK's Community News Hour, and I was very happy to be able to hear my own voice and work on the radio. And for that, I'm really thankful for the opportunity. KPFK, your community radio station. How has listening to KPFK changed your mind? Has KPFK helped you develop a more discerning, questioning attitude to information you're presented, even sometimes from KPFK? Something you don't need to question is that KPFK wouldn't exist without donations from listeners like you, who value how KPFK has equipped them to better understand the world and sort out the truth. If you can spare some change to help KPFK make change, please make your donation.